You're listening to Never Sleeps Network. This episode of Speech Bubble is sponsored by Harry Tarantula, where not only can you get your comics, your magic cards, and all the stuff that geeks like you will love, but now that accessible washroom is finally complete. This hits home from you guys. I'm a guy who uses a mobility scooter. I know how hard it is sometimes to have washrooms accessible in Toronto. So I'm really proud of Leon for putting his money where his mouth is, completing that accessible washroom, and making equal access for everyone. So go on down to 3456 Young Street, Harry Tarantula, and tell them Aaron sent you. Listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries, with your host, Aaron Broverman. Hey, fan people. Welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble. I am your host, Aaron Broverman. You found us on Never Sleeps Network at neversleepsnetwork.com. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcast needs met. You could also review our show and give us a star rating on Apple Podcasts or favorite us on Stitcher. Both help people know that we exist and helps us go up in the podcast charts. Uh, You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash speechbubblepod. All you need to contribute is $3 a month, and you will have access to process blogs from some of our best guests, including Chip Zdarsky, who will talk about his award-winning issue of a Spectacular Spider-Man. With me today is an award-winning cartoonist. He's won an Eisner and an Ignat. He's known for Street Angel, Aphrodisiac, Rambo 3.5, but you know him best as one half of the very popular cartoonist kayfabe show on YouTube. Uh, He works with Ed Piscor from Hip Hop Family Tree and X-Men Grand Design, and uh, they started out reviewing Wizard, but uh, it has grown by leaps and bounds. Uh, They talk about technique, they look at uh, old comics and hidden gems, such as Faust. Um, but Jim is here today to talk about his latest project. It's called Octobriana 1976. It's on Kickstarter now. You have to check it out. I've backed it. It's pretty amazing. It's the world's first blacklight comic book. So uh, you got to check it out. The character has an amazing backstory, which we are going to get into. So, without further ado, Jim Rugg. How are you, Jim? I'm great, Aaron. Thank you for having me here on Speech Bubble. It's a pleasure to join you. I discovered your work through Cartoonist Kayfabe, and I know that you're really big on experimentation and playing with the form of comics. Where did you get this penchant for experimentation, and uh, how did you go about uh, experimenting and coming across it as something you wanted to do? Um, Well, you know, I say I'm self-taught as a cartoonist. So 
I would look at everything with an eye of, you know, how did this artist do this or why did this artist do that? And I would look at everything I could get my hands on and read every interview I could with cartoonists and they all had different approaches. Comics were kind of the wild, wild west in a lot of ways because they weren't taught in schools and they weren't accepted by, you know, the fine art world. And so cartoonists, they were free to experiment. And I found myself attracted to that. People like Bill Sienkiewicz would have been an early artist where I would see him doing things that looked like child art in the middle of a violent adult comic like Electra Assassin. And that would capture my attention. Or I'd see like Frank Miller do Sin City where he's lettering it himself and it's in black and white. And it just didn't look like what I was used to, you know, for comic books at the time. And so that was the beginning. And then I would get tired of the same stuff and I would, I would start to seek out different types of comics and things that look different. And whenever I started making comics in the early 2000s, I would go to small press shows like the Small Press Expo, uh, you know, SPX or Mocha or TCAF. And I would see a lot of mini comics and a lot of handmade comics. And these just were the, the wildest collection of comics I'd ever seen. Like people were using all kinds of materials. The comics were about all sorts of subject matter. And I loved it. It was kind of like there were no rules to making comics. You can make comics about anything. You could draw those comics or paint those comics with whatever tool you liked. And that just spoke to me. And so I don't know, you know, if it's something that's uh, something I was born with that interest and like, let's try some new materials or let's try something different. But seeing that stuff really was my favorite part of comics for a long time. And so it just, you know, I just ingested it and, and it shows up in my own work as a result. With Octobriana in 1976, you wanted to create the world's first black light comic book, but why did you choose black light? I mean, I've uh, backed the project. I have my own black light, but uh, why black light? Well, it, you know, it goes back to just looking at all this different stuff. And I was making, I made a series of screen print posters that were black light posters and they used fluorescent ink. And whenever I got hold of those, whenever they came back from the printer, I was in awe of the color that it was so bright. And, you know, they're primary colors, but they're fluorescent. And my eyeballs were just like, this is amazing looking. Why doesn't a comic book look like this? Because, you know, comic books, especially superhero comics, I think of as being primary colors and, you know, bright colors and costumes. And when I saw the fluorescent inks, I just thought this is perfect for a comic book. And I started looking for a blacklight comic book and I didn't find one. And so it was like, well, that's great. I'll make one. Um, you know, so I talked to... Chris Pitzer at Ad House Books, who knows a lot more about printing than I do. And I kind of gave him my idea. You know, part of my experimentation is my background is in graphic design and print production. And so I do a lot of the pre-press for my comic books myself. You know, I, I write, I draw, I color, I, I do all of this myself. And so I know some of these processes. And after making the screen prints, I thought you could do this process with a, with a comic book and you could replace the regular four color cyan, magenta, and yellow with fluorescent inks and create a blacklight comic. And so I talked to Chris Pitzer about it and he seemed to think, yeah, that, that sounds like it would work. And uh, we started talking to printers and you know, they said it would work. And so that led me to making the, the world's first blacklight comic book. But it all stems from the blacklight posters that I saw and just fell in love with the colors and the way they looked. That's awesome. And if you want more insight into what influenced Jim during uh, the creation of Octobriana 1976, check out the video on Cartoonist Kayfabe detailing uh, just that. Um, 
to that end, uh, if we donate to the Kickstarter, which I hope a lot of our my listeners will do, um, what do you think is the ideal uh, reading experience for this comic? Do you actually want people to sit in the dark uh, with the black light? How should people read this comic? The first thing to do probably is go to one of the states where marijuana is legal. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, you know, it, if you have a black light, definitely take a look at it under the black light for sure. But it will work. Um, you know, what attracted me to it was just this super awesome color palette. And so I saw that just under regular light and was floored. So it should be, it should look great no matter what. I have digital options and I have print, you know, the printed comic book. I definitely recommend the printed comic book. Whenever I first started looking at Kickstarter, I wasn't even going to do a digital version because you can't do the fluorescent ink digitally. And that's what makes this special. Um, I actually am doing a digital version because that's kind of the standard, you know, it's a standard part of Kickstarter and I'm actually doing three digital versions because there is no version that, that is as, as cool in my mind as the fluorescent ink on paper. But I'm trying some different things to at least make the digital experience exciting and, and rewarding for somebody that goes that route. But man, the, the, the way to do this is to get the print comic book, which starts at the $20, $20 level, and then it's included with any, any uh, reward above that. Um, because that's the experience. You know, This thing was made to be a comic book in your hands. And uh, I hope everybody, uh, you know, everybody gives that version a shot because that is definitely going to be the way it looks the best. Well, that's good. I, I'm so glad I went the physical comic route hearing you say that. Um, going off of that, though, Octobrian has this weird history as a character. It's, it's something you covered on Cartoonist Kayfabe. But for those who don't know, can you explain what the deal is with Octobriana as a character? Yeah, that is the other part of this, you know, like I, I think there are two interesting parts to this book. One of them is the blacklight part. And the other part is definitely Octobriana and, you know, the history of this character. So there was a book published in 1971 called Octobriana and the Russian Underground by Peter Sadecki. And the conceit of the book is there's an underground resistance or subversive group uh, in the Soviet Union that are making these self-published comic books starring Octobriana, who is this superhero inspired by you know Western superheroes. And this comes out in 1971. So the idea is Octobriana was being done in the 60s by this underground Russian group of cartoonists. And Octobriana is the spirit of the October Revolution. And she she fights the Soviet oppression, you know, under the USSR. And so that was the concept of this book. And it was like a 200 page, mostly text with a few illustrations and examples of the Octobriana comics, which were smuggled out of the USSR by the author. It's amazing, you know, like as a fan of comics history, I got sucked right into this. You know, I love all of this. He's created this whole world of underground Russian resistance superhero comic art. And so I found that story very compelling and exciting in the character's public domain. You know, she's basically created for the people as a character to resist the, the oppression and the tyranny. It turns out that that is not a true story. <clears throat> the author, you know, wrote this whole book and it's a hoax. When it was published, I don't think even the publisher knew that it was a hoax. You know, like they have a, an expatriate Russian writer writing a, a compelling introduction and describing 
you know, what life is like in the Soviet Union at the time. So it's presented very straightforward and serious, like a piece of important history. And, uh, and, and that sets a tone for it. But as the character went out into the public, other cartoonists started to put the character in their books. Brian Talbot's one of the most famous examples in his book, Luther Arkwright, his graphic novel series. And other people followed suit. There are adult comics that feature Octobriana. Um, you know, there are indie black and white comics that feature Octobriana. So she's kind of this public domain character that a lot of creators have been using either as a supporting character or a main character. And she's got this incredible backstory, you know, that's what exactly is, is true about her. You know, it was unclear for a long time, especially before the internet, um, you know, really is a place that you can easily kind of research this. But before that, you know, it was cartoonists that were interested like Trina Robbins, um, one of the great historians of comics was interested in the character and, and investigated her and talked to international cartoonists about her and where she came from. There were stories that the CIA was involved. Um, probably that seems to be unlikely, although as part of this Kickstarter, um, I have filed Freedom of Information Act requests with the CIA and FBI to find out what they knew about Octobriana, if it was something that was on their radar. And uh, so far, there's at least one document from the CIA about Octobriana. So it's this fascinating character. David Bowie tried to make a movie starring Octobriana. Um, Billy Idol has an Octobriana tattoo on his arm. So, you know, she looks great. She's very iconic. She fits into that like 60s superhero, you know, iconography. So visually, she's stunning. And then like the story behind her is equally compelling, you know, whether it's in the comics where she's fighting all kinds of stuff like radiated giant walruses or in real life where, you know, like the character is, is she's actually the art that's in Octobriana in the Russian underground is actually stolen from Czech artists. And then the writer fled from, you know, from Czechoslovakia and uh, stole this artwork. So there's kind of an interesting story there as well that also parallels some of the history of American superhero comics and maybe the mistreatment, depending on your perspective, of the creators of some of the American superhero comics. You know, there's a similar story with Octobriana. So there's a lot to unpack there. And, and for me, as a fan of this, of comics history, I just dove in, man. I, I love all of it. If you want to learn more and see the original Octobriana book from 1971, you gotta watch the video on Cartoonist Kayfabe. Uh, that's where you'll see uh, Jim and Ed talking about it. And, uh, but I think Octobriana fits another pattern in your work you seem to gravitate towards rebellious women in comics, going back to Street Angel and Plain Janes. Uh, that might be because comics are more male-dominated, there's a lot more machismo in comics. I have theories, but uh, what's the real reason? Why do you gravitate towards uh, rebellious female characters in the, the comics that you do? Well, you know, it started for me with Street Angel. And, the, and one of the main reasons that I did Street Angel at the time was I was just unhappy as a reader with what I saw on New Comic Book Day. You know, it seemed like it was all the same stuff and I had read, you know, that stuff forever and I wanted something different. And so I started to design Street Angel with that in mind. Like I was going to make a comic that was the opposite of most of what I was seeing on New Comics Day. And this was in, you know, early 2000s. And so Street Angel came out of that, you know, as you said, most of the superhero comics were men, so I'm going to have a woman. Uh, most of them were adults, so I was going to have a kid. So, you know, it was like this whole thing of like just trying to do something different than what I saw on the newsstands. 
or on the, you know, comic book store, I guess at the time, not the, not the newsstands, um, but the new comic rack. And so that's how Street Angel developed. Um, I don't, you know, it's funny, Street Angel leads to Plain Janes, like the editor and the writer of Plain Janes saw Street Angel and, and wanted to work with me. So that's how the Plain Janes came about. And I was very happy with that. I, I the experience making the Plain Janes is one of the best experiences of my life. So that worked out well. Um, I don't know exactly why I would gravitate towards women characters. Like I have ideas about it. When I was in high school, my art teacher commented that I just didn't draw women well. My, the, the women I drew basically looked like men because I spent most of my time drawing Wolverine and Punisher. So whenever I drew a woman character, she kind of looked like, you know, Frank Castle or, or Wolverine. And a lot of people, you know, whenever you're told you can't do something, then you work on it. And so, of course, I tried to figure out how to draw women and make them look like women instead of just, you know, ugly vigilante men. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, that might be part of it is almost like I'm going to show her that I can draw women. Um, so I don't know, it just, you know, it just kind of worked out well. And I want to do books that look different than other books, you know, and it, it's still, especially superhero comics, I think are still dominated by male characters. There are exceptions. I think it's much more diverse than it used to be, but I think that's probably part of my attraction too, is I want to make comics that don't look like other comics. Yeah, totally. But with Street Angel, there's another collaborator and I want to talk about, uh, your collaborations. Who is Brian Maruka and what is his role in Street Angel? Sure. Um, Brian Maruka is my longtime writing partner. And we used to work together at my day job. He was a technical writer and I was a graphic designer. And just in the course of getting, you know, working together, I recognized that he was a good writer. So I was making mini comics and I would bring them in and be like, hey, man, read this script or read this mini comic and give me feedback. And it very organically developed into emails with, you know, ideas and characters. And that grew into almost a 20 year writing partnership. And we don't write everything together. But with the Street Angel character, you know, like that's a character that we co-created and that we've been writing together for, you know, basically almost 20 years. And, uh, you know, at this point, I. I trust him because I know him and I've worked with him for so long, you know, it, sometimes he's more of an editor or sometimes he writes most of the story, you know, and, and maybe I'm the editor and I'm looking at it and seeing the visuals and thinking this is perfect. So there's not one way that we, that we work together. Um, you know, sometimes one of us has an idea that we like, but it needs fleshed out or one of us has a very near complete idea, you know, that we show up with and then it just needs some details and polish. So it's a lot of back and forth and organic. But it's having that second set of eyes that I trust, um, you know, to, to kind of really look at the work in progress and, and give me feedback. A lot of, you know, like I said, in a lot of cases, it's similar to an editor. Having that person there that will tell you no is really important. And, uh, you know, having somebody that you can trust and run an idea past at different stages of development, I find really important. So that's kind of uh, my relationship with Brian at this point. But he is, you know, co-creator of Street Angel and of Aphrodisiac. So we've had a pretty good track record working together. That's interesting. So you recognized him as a good writer at your day job. Was that through stuff he brought in? Like, how did you guys initially connect? I recognized it from things we would work on together through work. So like manuals and things, stuff that was relatively, you know, it might be dry, but as a technical writer, you need to be able to be clear. And I think clarity is very important. And so I would see that. I would see him you know, breaking down very complex ideas and instructions into things that I understood, you know, 
engineering concepts that made sense to me. And so that was one part of it. And the other part was uh, just emails, you know, like we tended to have a similar sense of humor, our interest tended to overlap. So just in the course of emailing, I would get emails that would make me laugh and it'd be like, that's great. And, you know, I, I wasn't sure if he wanted to write fiction. Um, you know, at first it was just like, look at this script and tell me, you know, punch it up or give me some feedback. And that just very naturally led to suddenly I get an email from him about a whole different story. And it was like, oh, this, this is good. All right, let's, let's go in this direction. Um, you know, so it just kind of happened. Was he also a comic fan? <sighs> Certainly not at the level that I am. You know, he read comics like a lot of people do when he was younger. Um, and he is a fan of comedy and animation and, and things. So he's not as uh, into comics as I am, but he's also familiar with them and stuff and, and did spend years of his youth reading them. Earlier, you mentioned that Plain James was one of the most rewarding experiences of your career. Uh, we've had Cecil Castellucci on, the writer of Plain James, before. So what was it like working with her? That experience was magical. I think Plain James was the first comic that she wrote, but she's another person who was a comics fan and was interested in doing comics, and that happened to be the opportunity that presented itself to her first. Um, I should mention the editor, Shelley Bond. Um, that's who was behind the Plain Janes when it was published at DC Comics. And there was a whole line of young adult graphic novels that Shelley Bond was putting together. And so Shelley Bond, you know, helped Cecil in terms of, like Cecil was already a good prose author at that point and had a lot of experience writing young adult fiction. And so it was a matter of like transitioning that into a comic script. And uh, I think Shelley helped and worked very closely with her. But also Shelly brought me in very early on and really the three of us would just like talk and email and work every week we would meet. And it was, it was very educational for me. You know, I mentioned being self-taught early on. One of my goals was to work at Marvel or DC for a while to work with an editor to basically learn that system, you know, and, and to learn to make better comics. And Shelly was just a great teacher for that. And I think most of it comes down to communication. So we were one of the last books to sign with the young adult imprint that DC was doing. And we were the first book released, which meant the turnaround was very fast. So I started drawing the book before it was even completely written. <laughs> and that's part, I think, of why we met every week. But those weekly meetings were great because she would look at the art that I had done that week. We would look at Cecil's script. We would talk about it. You know, if something was different in, in my art, why did I make that choice? Um, or you know, is it effective? And both Shelley and Cecil were very open to my input, which made it a very nice collaboration. So it was just very positive. We all got along well. You know, I think we all respected each other. I certainly respected the work that Shelley and Cecil were doing. And, you know, it just, it just worked. You know, it was just a very positive experience. It was a good energy. And uh, I think I certainly developed and improved as a cartoonist as a result of working with both of them. Was working with an editor where the education piece came from? It did. And one of the things that I did on Plain Janes that I had not done on Street Angel, um, I had to do pretty detailed thumbnails for editorial approval. Uh, believe it or not, you know, like that's a really common part. Almost everything that I've done since then, I have done, you know, these thumbnails. But before then, I didn't. I just had a detailed script and then I would draw a page doing the thumbnails is a, is a vital part of, you know, my process now. First time I ever did it was on the plain Jane. So that was a, a giant piece of my process that I've taken with me ever since. 
You mentioned you were a comics fan, but I want to discuss your early life because for so many I admire, I know about their careers, but I don't know what shaped them uh, to who you are as a person and a professional. So what was your early life like and how did your parents nurture your artistic talent? Did you draw as a kid? Paint me a picture of uh, your childhood. Yeah, so I was the kid that drew all the time, but I didn't read comics until um, I was 10 because I got a paper route and had my own money and started buying comics and fell in love with them. And at that point it was like, I want to be a comic book artist, but my parents weren't too into the comics part, you know, like comics still had a stigma at that time that they were for little kids. And, you know, my art teachers didn't like comics either. You know, they kind of thought they were really bad art and, you know, that's not what you want to do. So the comics part was kind of my own piece of it. Um, but the art part, the drawing part, like I just always loved to draw. And what I was drawing before comics was things like um, movie characters, like especially slasher movies. I was really into horror movies when I was a kid. So I was drawing like Freddy and Jason and Leatherface and Michael Myers. And then also I was drawing wrestlers because I was into professional wrestling. So, you know, it was like Hulk Hogan and Ultimate Warrior and Macho Man and stuff like that. And if you can imagine what I just described, they're basically comic book characters. You know, it's, it's dudes jumping around and fighting and, and stuff. So whenever I started buying comic books, it just, it looked like what I was drawing, uh, you know, really similar, like the superhero stuff. Cause I was just buying off of, you know, you could get comics and drugstores and stuff whenever I was a kid. So I would go to the grocery store or wherever, and I would just buy a comic and it looked like the comics I was drawing like superheroes. And as soon as I saw them, I was, I was on board, you know, it was like, this is it. Like, people are paid to do this. I'm doing it now for free. This is what I want to do. And it was a good time period because it was, it was probably like late 80s and then into the early 90s. And that would have been like Todd McFarlane on Spider-Man, Rob Liefeld on New Mutants and then X-Force, Jim Lee on X-Men. You know, it was, a, it was a, if, if you were, because I was following artists, like even from the beginning, I would be like, man, I like this McFarlane guy, you know, what's he drawing? I'm going to get his book. And so that was a good time for it. You know, those artists were very popular and they were available like those, they were all doing monthly books, which, you know, <laughs> that's kind of gone to the wayside, but it was exciting for me because I was just buying off, off of like spinner racks and, you know, every month or so it'd be like, cool, you know, new Rob Liefeld comic. Well, that's good. You were a fan right as the black and white boom ended right into the rise and fall of the speculator market, something you chronicle a lot on Cartoonist Kayfabe, especially on your wizard episodes. At the time, did you perceive what was happening in comics as far as uh, the end of the black and white boom and, and the start of the speculator market, that sort of rise and fall? No, I had no idea and I had nothing to compare it to at the time. But the good thing with Image is that made me find a comic book store because I, I, those were my favorite artists. And so I thought like when I was seeing their books advertised, I thought the only way to get them was at a comic book store. You know, they had a little bit of newsstand distribution, but I had to have those comics. And so like the nearest comic book store was almost an hour away. And, you know, I might be able to bug my parents to take me there once a month or something and I'd save up my money. But the comic book store opened my eyes, you know, like the black and white explosion that I love now, I didn't know about at the time until I got into the comic book stores in the 90s. And then it was like, I would see all of these indie books, Faust and The Tick and, you know, just Xenozoic Tales and Black Hole, you know, all this stuff. I had no idea it existed. 
until I got into the comic stores. And then it was like, oh man, this is great. Because the black and white stuff looked a lot like my sketchbooks. You know, I didn't know how to color a comic. And if I did color a picture, you know, with colored pencils or markers or something, it didn't look like comic book coloring, but the black and white stuff did. And so pretty quickly, you know, I outgrew the image stuff and I went into like the black and white comics and there were so many good ones, you know, like David Lapham's Stray Bullets, Frank Miller was doing Sin City. I found The Crow around that time. So, you know, in my mind, I was, I was, it was like the next level of comics for me. You know, I really got in deeper at that point because these comics were more personal and they spoke to me more. I found Chester Brown's I Never Liked You, which was about, um, they, they were, that's an autobiographic story about Chester Brown's kind of middle school, high school, starting to discover girls. And so I go from reading Wolverine to reading I Never Liked You. And the identification is, is just huge. You know, it's like suddenly this is a character that's kind of like me. I'm in, you know, high school or middle school and, you know, trying to talk to girls and things. And it was like, there's a comic book about that. I had no idea that, you know, comics like that existed. So that was, that was huge for me. Were these comics you could identify with? Uh, did it make it think, uh, you know, pursuing a career in comics was uh, more realistic because you saw, you know, other people uh, doing comics that were a little more simple, a little more pared down than your traditional DC or Marvel comics? Yeah, you know, it was just mind expanding for all those reasons. One of the things you're famous for on Cartoonist Kayfabe is something called the Kayfabe Bump. It's, it's where you, you showcase a comic on the channel and, uh, you know, the next day or a week following, it starts to go up in value on, on eBay. Um, <laughs> when you talk about being a comics fan, were you always adept at finding these hidden gems and digging through uh, back issue bins? You sort of brought back back issue diving on Cartoonist Kayfabe because there's a lot of other YouTube channels that just focus on, you know, the new releases and reviewing those. So do you have any strategies uh, for people listening around uh, back issue hunting and how to find uh, these hidden gem comics? Um, when a, okay, so a strategy that people might want to do if they're super nerds and care about this I keep an alphanumerical list on my phone, just in the notes, and that's really convenient. If I happen to come across a, you know, a comic book store and they have back issues, that makes it very easy to search, you know, for whatever I'm actually looking for, you know, especially if it's like one issue in a series that I'm missing. That part's something that um, I don't know when I started doing it, but has really helped me fill in gaps and find comics that I've that I that I would otherwise overlook. Um, otherwise, you know, it's just, that's a fun thing for me. It's, it's part of the hunt and maybe it's even nostalgic because like when I was a kid, I would buy comics at a flea market was, was one of the places I would get comics and it was very random, you know, maybe there'd be a stack on somebody's table or somebody might even have a couple of boxes, but it would just be looking through it with no knowledge of what I'm seeing, you know, because at that point that was early in my reading days, it was pre wizard. I really didn't know anything about comics history. And these would be older comics. So it would just be like looking through a box and seeing what I thought looked cool, um, you know, so randomly picking. So I don't know that I have any special skill in that regard, um, but it was more of just looking for things that, you know, spoke to me and that, that looked interesting to me. And I'm sure, you know, if somebody else looked in that box, they would respond to other things. Um, but 
it was something I enjoyed. You know, it was exciting because it was something new and surprising, you know, and sometimes those books turned out to be lousy, but sometimes those books turned out to be Dragon Chang by Timothy Truman, you know, so it, it worked both ways and it was just very exciting finding that new unknown part. And it's harder and harder to find that, um, that, you know, finding that new thing. I used to have that feeling at video stores, like when video stores were big and I was 10 or 12 years old, I would spend hours at the video store, just like looking at all of these VHS covers of movies I didn't know. And, you know, they all looked really cool and they sounded good. Digging for comics is a similar thing. And it's harder to do that now with all the AI that points you at like, oh, if you like this book, you'll like, you know, one of these books and all of the advanced ordering. So like, we know what's coming out. We know who the creative team is. We know what the story is. It's, it's taken away some of that thrill of like finding something new. And you go into a 50 cent box and it's, you, can get, you can get that feeling back. You know, there's, there's a lot of old comics that I've never heard of. And so you're flipping through a good box and it's like, wow, this looks neat. I have no idea who it is or what it is. I'm excited to take it home and spend some time with it and, and give it a read. How do you feel about this idea of the kayfabe bump? Is it overwhelming? Do you feel a sense of responsibility uh, <laughs> you know, around the unintended consequences of the channel and, and how your videos uh, change the market sometimes? You know, man, if, if more people track down Dragon Chang, like Timothy Truman is an artist. He was one of the first artists that I followed and, and that I looked for as a kid whenever I found comic book stores, I was collecting his series Scout. It was the first series that I went into like back issue bins looking for. I'm a huge fan of his work. Um, we've gotten to interview him on the show, which is awesome. You know, he was very cool in the interview. So that's always nice. You never know what people are going to be like, you know, uh, whenever you meet your heroes. But Tim Truman is, is a guy that I, you know, I studied his art closely growing up and really admired his cartooning. And so like we looked at Dragon Chang was a one shot that he did, I don't know, in 89 or 91, something like that. And it's just this sci-fi story about, it's set in a dystopian future and it's about this transcontinental truck driver and he gets hijacked and he kind of has to fight, you know, these, these almost like a Max, Mad Max kind of comic. And so we looked at that and that book shot up in price, but Tim Truman was also selling those, you know, like a lot of cartoonists had his own web store. And so he sold a bunch of those himself. Um, I love it. I think that's really awesome. I don't feel any responsibility, you know, like don't review this or review this or, or, or something, you know, we're just looking at books that we like and there's so many, you know, it's almost random what, what book we choose to look at whenever we do, because there are thousands of comics I love that I'd be happy to talk about. And part of the appeal is I want to hear Ed's opinion on it. You know, it gives me a chance to see this book that I like from a different angle. Um, you know, so a lot of it is just like celebrate, you know, celebrate the comics that we like. And then, you know, if a few more people find it, I think that's great. Um, that, that price bump, I don't want anybody to be gouged, but that's the nature of, of back issues. You know what I mean? Like, hopefully people are, you know, what I hope happens is people that like this and enjoy the shows, I hope they start looking in 50 cent boxes and pulling out books that appeal to them, you know, grab it before the kayfabe effect happens. Um, but I think there's a lot of treasure in those back issue boxes. And I think they've been overlooked for a decade or two. A lot of comic shops got rid of most of their back issues in the last 20 years. And uh, I think there's treasure there. So, you know, 
hopefully it encourages people to give those boxes another look if they want something different to read or if they're looking for something a little bit different, give those a look. You're also helping the retailer, especially in these times, uh, get rid of their back stock, which is helpful during a pandemic. Uh, you know, so, uh, but I mean, people also give you a lot of uh, comics. You know, they watch your videos, they, they think, you know, there might be things in their collection that you want to check out. And, you know, one of the highlights for me is always watching you and Ed, you know, flip for uh, these comics that you receive so you can take them home. But that must be a ton of comics. So how do you, you know, read all these comics and still make a living as a cartoonist and, you know, have enough time to uh, do your job? Yeah, I follow a lot of retailers and I have a lot of friends who are retailers. And uh, during quarantine and this, um, you know, the, the self-isolation, I've seen a lot of retailers posting videos or posting Instagrams of different books going through their back stock and, you know, selling what they have. And it's kind of cool. You know, I think they're, if we've had any positive effect on that, I'm, I'm glad to do that. You know, I, I think those books, a good book's a good book now, uh, 10 years ago, 10 years from now. So, you know, I, 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 I'm glad if people are giving those comics a second look and finding some good stuff in there. We can't read it all. I can't read it all. Um, I read the stuff that speaks to me. I have like my comic books are sorted alphanumerically. So, you know, if we get a pile of comics, I can go through them and say, oh, this is a double. You know, I have this one already and I have a box of doubles. And so we've started actually sending those out to uh, cartoonist kayfabe fans. Um, I wish I had better systems of like, how do you distribute comics if you don't have room for them or if you have doubles and stuff. And so we try to do creative things in that regard. Um, you know, and you try to organize and, and store as much as you can too, because things that come in, sometimes they're very important three months later. For example, somebody had sent me um, Cherry's Jubilee, which is an adult comic. Someone had sent this to us a couple of months ago. And whenever I started researching different Octobriana stuff, there's an Octobriana appearance in Cherry's Jubilee. So I was able to pull that out and lo and behold, I have a copy of it, which is awesome. You know, so it's something I can talk about as I'm talking about Octobriana. I didn't know it at the time, you know, like for me, it was like, okay, this is an interesting comic. I don't have this. Let me put it in my boxes. But then, you know, in research, you realize like, oh, this is important. Pull this out. And that's happened several times with comics that people have sent us. And then we start talking about an artist or a character and one of those comics becomes really important now a couple of months later. So, you know, we do our best to keep them in order. Um, and we get, we get really interesting stuff. Like uh, we got a batch of heavy metal magazines from Alika Seca, a retailer in Maui, Maui Comics. And he sent us a box of heavy metal, which features a lot of artists I don't know, a lot of European artists and, and different artists that I'm not familiar with. And so, you know, it was fun to show them off because the art looks really good, but then it's like, okay, Ed, you take some of them and I'll take some of them. And then we go through them, you know, and sure enough, we come back to like, okay, now let's look at this artist or this issue because it has this really exciting piece in it that I think is worth spending more time on or sharing it with our viewers. So, you know, we, we, one of the things that has come out of Cartoonist Kayfabe that surprised me is that community. You know, whenever we find something we like, or something new that we don't know about but looks good, in the course of talking about it, 
we'll have people watching the video that are then telling us about it because they know more about it than we do. So it's kind of this dialogue, you know, it really is like this community of give and take. And uh, that part's been, it's been great. And it was something I just, I didn't think about, you know, I wasn't, I, I wasn't sure what to expect when we started the video. And that community piece has been a really great surprise. You know, I think what we do appeals to a lot of people, you know, if you love comics, there, there's a real sense of like belonging, I think, in comics. I had that experience when I first started going to a comic book shop and it was like, oh, these are my people. Or when I started going to conventions and it was like, I know, you know, you would meet somebody at a comic book convention and start talking about, you know, the books you like and the books they like. And pretty soon it's like, I know this person better than I know somebody I went to, to high school with or something. So that sense of community is, is a part of comics that I really love and has been like this nice accident that has come out of Cartoonist Kayfabe. On Cartoonist Kayfabe, you not only showcase lesser known comics, you also showcase uh, technique. And I know personally that a lot of my artist friends in Toronto, they use you know your videos for new skills. Uh, you mentioned earlier in the conversation that you're self-taught, but now you're sort of teaching in sort of a quasi masterclass style. Um, I should also mention that you've taught at the School of Visual Art in, in Pennsylvania. So how did you get the confidence from going from somebody who, you know, just picked up things as a fan and, you know, learning as you went along with, with no professional training to somebody who's now uh, teaching people how to make comics? Hmm. I don't know if I have a satisfying answer for that, Aaron. <laughs> you know, in the process of trying to learn to make comics, um, whenever I would meet cartoonists I liked, or even, you know, like, like random cartoonists that I would meet at conventions, some of the conversation would be about craft and about making comics because one, I wanted to get better. And especially if it was somebody whose work I knew and I was like, well, how did they do this? Or why did they do this? It was a chance to actually ask them and talk about it. And so, you know, I've done that my, virtually my entire career, I've done that. And, um, it just, it, it goes both ways, you know, like as I got to be a little better known, then people would come up and ask me how I did this or why I did that. And, you know, it's just kind of like paying it forward in a way. Like I'm happy to tell people whatever I know because so many people were generous with me and told me what they knew, uh, you know, from what tools they use, you know, very specific things. Um, people were very generous with me in these conversations. Sometimes I look back and think, man, I, I shouldn't have been asking this person that, you know, like that's their technique or that's, that's, you know, that's the thing they developed. But for the most part, everybody was happy to talk about their craft. And, you know, so am I, it's, it's a conversation that I would have with cartoonists off the record or, you know, after hours at these conventions. And it's part of what inspired us to do cartoonist kayfabe was like these conversations, we love them. Like let's do more of them. Let's record them. And so it, it kind of naturally grew out of that. And, you know, I'm still learning. I did a video that has uh, has some screen tone being applied, and uh, and I did it on my own. I think Ed might have been in Japan or something. Whenever I saw Ed afterwards, he's like, "I do screen tone totally different." <laughs> and it turns out Ed's technique is the more standard technique. Like in a way, I was doing screen tone wrong. So um, you know, I'm still learning, but I also don't believe there's one. You know, there, there's more than one way to skin a cat. And so that gives me some confidence in that I'm showing you how I do it. If it works for you this way, great, try it. Uh, you know, but it's, 
if you do it a different way, that's fine too. You know, like there's not one way to do most of this stuff. And of course, you know, people can teach you things or give you advice all day, but if you don't apply it properly, you know, you're never going to get published. So do you have to have that confidence if you're self-taught? Are there certain traits you have to have if you want to be able to be still self-taught, but, you know, still have the follow-through uh, to get published? Um, like I said, there's a lot of ways to do this. You know, I don't think there's just one way to be a published artist, but there are some things that I think you need to have if you're going to do this, uh, you know, kind of for a living. One of them is discipline. Like you really have to treat deadlines like the end all be all. And sometimes that means a creative concession along the way, because you know, that that's the important part is again, if it's a, if it's a profession, if it's a career, if it's something that you're really going to pay the bills with, the deadlines are vital. So that's something that can be challenging for a lot of people. And it's not easy to balance that all the time, but you sort of have to, you know, do your best on your page today and, if it's not perfect, that's all right. They're never perfect. Uh, do better tomorrow, you know, and on, on the next page and keep going. Um, so that's one thing, you know, I, I know lots of cartoonists that they are perfectionists and they won't move on to that next page. And as a result, they don't finish their work. In some cases, I know cartoonists that have not finished a single book, even though they draw better than anybody I know. And it's because they can't stop redrawing, you know, some background detail or something. Um, <laughs> you know, there's, there's other little bits like figuring out how to make it work financially. That's another piece that's very individual. Uh, the Kickstarter is a good example. You know, that's one outlet. Ed recently started serializing his comic Red Room on Patreon. You know, that's another option. And at some point, I'm sure Ed's book will turn into a print book. Um, you know, there's, there's lots of ways that you can do this from self-publishing to format choices. And all of those are kind of trial and error and up to the person making it. Uh, it can be overwhelming, the amount of choices that we have, but um, I don't know. Uh, you know, there's lots of pieces that go into making the success. One piece is th there's a myth that if you're good enough craft-wise, then people will come, and that's just not true. You know, the best-selling comics and the best quality comics, those two things just aren't related. They just aren't, and it's a myth that we all want to believe. You know, like you want to believe the world's fair, and it isn't fair. Um, you know, and if you, if you recognize that, I think, I think that can be helpful, um, you know, in a practical sense, because you spend all this time making your comic, then you have to spend time selling the comic if you want the comic to sell, you know, it's a different practice, it's a different piece of the, of the component. And if you look at something like Hollywood movie system, for example, typically a Hollywood movie has the same budget for marketing as it does for production. So if you think of that as your comic, think about it as resources. You know, it could be time, it could be money, whatever, but are you spending as much on selling your comic as you are on making your comic? Most of us aren't. You know, we don't like that part. It's, it, it can be uncomfortable doing that. Um, in which case, you know, you can hire a publicist. Like there are people that do these jobs, but it's a part of the comics business. And if you, you know, if, if your goal is to sell comics, there's a process of selling the same way there's a process of drawing or writing or, or producing, you know? As a freelancer myself, I know that it can be a bit of a grind, you know, sometimes you get bored with what you're doing and that sort of thing, but you don't seem to have that problem. You're always switching between different interests, whether it's binding books or, you know, reading comics or 
you know, when you look at something like Street Angel, it seems like every issue, there's like a different style of comics. So is that important to like switch it up so that you don't get bored with the monotony and the grind of being a freelancer and then eventually maybe fall out of the industry? Yeah, 100%. You know, mo most of the comics that I make, they are labors of love. And it's for a variety of reasons. You know, it's a story that I'm excited about, or it's a concept or a character or a new art style. Uh, one of the stories in Deadliest Girl Alive, I drew completely on my iPad. Um, you know, it was a chance to just like switch it up, try something different, try a different tool. Some of those stories I draw in pencil, some of them I draw in ink. And I love that stuff. You know, usually what happens is I spend however much time making a comic or a graphic novel using a certain process and a set of tools and even the size of paper that I'm drawing on. And so when I finish that, I want to do something different. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, and, and that might influence the choices I make as to like, what's the next project? So yeah, it, it definitely, it keeps me engaged. And I, I'm a big believer that if you're doing something that you're excited to do, some of that energy comes through in, you know, in the story, in the comic. And so, you know, life is short, like as much as possible, I want to spend my time drawing the comics that I want to draw and, and, you know, telling the stories that I want to tell. And so, you know, it, it, in a way it goes back to the selling part. If you're willing to figure out how to sell this stuff, it can create a lot of, uh, of creative freedom. It surprises me even, you know, where you end up going, because for those that watch cartoonist kayfabe, you know, it looked like your next project was going to be a comic about running. You know, you talked about it. Uh, we'd seen a little bit of it. But then suddenly you announce Octobriana 1976 and this new Kickstarter. And it seemed to come out of left field. So uh, is this running book still happening? You know, what are the sorts of things that are percolating in your head as the next project or the next thing that you want to do? Uh, can you give us any insight into your upcoming projects without violating anything like an NDA or, or that sort of thing? Well, um, the running comic is still going in my head. What happened is that was a freelance project. That was going to be a, a comic that I hope to get back to at some point. I love running. Um, I, I like a lot of manga and one of the popular genres in manga are like these young adult sports stories. And so that was a big influence on the running comic. Um, I still think there's, there's a gold story there to be had. So I hope to get back to that story at some point. Um, but what happened is I had submitted some proposals to different publishers for a variety of stories and one of them got picked up and most of them were dream projects for me in a lot of ways. And so whenever one of them was picked up, it was kind of like, if you want to do it, let's do it. And, but now's the time. And so the, that's what pushed the running project off. Octobriana come up because we were negotiating contracts for the dream pro for, for this other project that I was going to do, which is a big graphic novel. And it's going to take me probably more than a year to do it. And it is behind an NDA. So I can't tell you specifically uh, details about it, but it's something I'm really excited to do. Um, but in the process of negotiating the contract, there, there was a little bit of a bump and I had some free time. It looked like it was going to be about mm, maybe four weeks before I would be able to start on it. And I didn't want to do nothing. And it wasn't enough time to do a running graphic novel. Uh, but I did want to do a blacklight comic book. And the idea just kind of formed very quickly. And my plan was the reason Octobriana is a surprise for everybody is 
my plan was I'm going to do this comic book. I had a whole bunch of comic book conventions scheduled for this year to support Plain Janes and to support Street Angel Deadliest Girl Alive. My plan was to make Octobriana the comic book and then just, and not tell anyone and just show up at all of these conventions with it at my table. And so anybody that would come up would be like, oh, you know, this, what is this really cool looking book? And then when all the, you know, all the conventions were canceled, I had to pivot. And that's what led me to kickstarting it. And that's why it's a surprise, you know, like uh, I was mentioning earlier how we just know everything that's coming out months before it comes out. And I like the surprise. So I wanted to try to do something that would be that surprise. And in this case, it's Octobriana. Yeah, that's one of the things that I've admired about you guys, because, you know, a lot of my artist friends, you know, in the time of this pandemic have really struggled wondering what they're going to do next, where they're going to pivot, how they're going to generate some income. But uh, you and Ed, you don't seem to miss a beat when you watch Cartoonist Kayfabe. You know, it seems like you're still doing projects. You know, you barely mention how this pandemic is affecting you guys. You know, you were supposed to be at TCAF, which is the Toronto Cartoon Art Festival, which is sort of why I'm interviewing you on a Toronto-centric comic podcast. Um, But, you know, I want to know, like, how is this pandemic really affecting you and your career? You know, is it more of a question mark and is it more trepidatious for you than we initially realized? Or are you just really good at, like, putting on a brave face? Or uh, do you just have backup plans for your backup plans? I do have backup plans for my backup plans. I'm a neurotic cartoonist, like most (laughs) cartoonists I know. Uh, You know, so I do spend a lot of time at night awake when I want to be sleeping, but instead making backup plans and worrying about everything. Um, Doing the, the podcast has been helpful because honestly, doing all this work has been helpful. Um, Sometimes I actually think I may be working extra right now in a way to not think about COVID-19 and, you know, the situation outside of my house. As a cartoonist, I spend most of my time indoors anyway with my head down, you know, at the drawing table. So physically, it's not all that different, but certainly, you know, the, the emotional part, the stress, the trepidation, all of those things, you know, I feel all of that anxiety like everybody else. And the work is a relief. You know, if I can spend a couple of hours concentrating on some fantasy world, uh, you know, it may mean not reading scary tweets or, or headlines or, you know, watching the news or something. I find it really helpful. Um, I recently made a cartoonist kayfabe shirt and it was because I had like an hour of free time. <laughs> and when I finished, I realized like, you know, this is me on a Saturday with an, with an hour of free time, finding some work to do. Maybe that's not healthy, but that's kind of been my coping mechanism. Um, so, you know, it's, I, I, I can relate to these feelings that everybody is is struggling with. And I've been fortunate in that I've had some projects in a position of, you know, different states of production are different mindsets. So I often will do layouts first thing in the morning because they're more demanding for me. And like I can ink later in the day whenever I'm a little bit tired mentally, but I can still engage with that process. So I've had these projects that are like, okay, it's ready to draw. So, you know, there's less distraction. It's more of like focus on the page, focus on the craft. And that's very helpful. I don't know, man. It's, you know, it's tough. Uh, We've talked about things like exercise and diet and things on Cartoonist Kayfabe 
as part of trying to manage all of this because it is stressful. Um, you know, everybody's experiencing, I think, anxiety right now. There's a lot of unknown facing all of us. Um, I just try to do my best to, you know, keep myself away from bad habits. Yeah, comic industry professionals and retailers were hit harder than other sectors because Diamond stopped distributing comics uh, along with, you know, comic shops being, uh, being shut down. And Diamond has only recently in the last like week or so as this is being recorded, uh, you know, resumed giving comics to the comic shops and distributing them again. So I want to know, like, where do you think the industry goes from here? Um, you know, one of the things about Diamond is, you know, they, you know, control the direct market. They, they have a monopoly on, uh, on the distribution. So do you think, you know, out of the pandemic and COVID-19, comic distribution is going to change? Uh, where do we go from here as a comic industry? I do think the comics industry will change. I think, you know, lots of parts of our world are going to change. Um, I don't know where comics are going to go from here. It's hard for me to, to speculate on that. And, you know, there's been so much talk about distribution and comic shops uh, and publishers. You know, all of these things are, are, have been topics because what else do we have to talk about, um, you know, if things are closed down? So I, I think there will probably be some alternative distribution methods, and some of them may already exist. You know, what I could see changing is when we talk about comic shops, I think we make a mistake by saying comic shops, because quite frankly, they're all individual small businesses, and they all run very differently. You know, how shop owners engage with comics, there's a radical range, uh, you know, how different shops handle this. So I think some shops are probably going to come out of this and say, we need to not be dependent on one distributor. Let's Let's look into Ingram, you know, book distributor, for example, or let's look into some of the smaller distributors that handle some indie books and things like that. Or let's look into dealing with indie creators, you know, on an individual basis based on what I think the shop will support. Um, so I think that maybe shops will look at distribution options, uh, you know, re-evaluate re distribution options that already exist. Um, I wonder about publishers, you know, and if they will start to look for more distribution options. And, you know, what we, what I think we need to do that, that I don't know a lot about distribution or retail. So in a lot of ways, you know, I'm an idiot talking about this stuff, but I do think one thing that we should all think about is how do we get more readers? And when I say all of us, I mean, comic fans, comic makers, publishers, distributors, retailers, librarians, anybody that's connected with comics and cares about comics, we should be making these decisions with more readers in mind, um, you know, being reader friendly as much as possible. And so what that looks like, or if anybody even, you know, agrees with me is to, is to be determined, but there probably are opportunities to, um, you know, when Jim Shooter ran Marvel famously, he said, every comic book is somebody's first comic book. I don't think we've practiced that as an industry for a long time. It might not be a bad thing to, to think about doing again, um, you, to, you know, to make these comics as reader friendly as possible with an eye towards putting them in new readers' hands. So I don't know what the future is going to hold. You know, the comic book format is a strange format. It was developed because it was super cheap initially. That's no longer the case. And if you're writing a multi-issue story, 
does it even make sense to publish it as comic books? I don't know, you know, so will anything change? I can't say, but I, I am optimistic about comics because there are just so many options for creators to get comics into readers' hands. And I think that retailers that care, there's a lot of room for them. Um, I know a lot of really good retailers and they already do all the stuff that I mentioned. You know, they are already backing crowdfunding and have relationships with creators who work outside of the diamond distribution model. Um, you know, they use several distributors. So these practices already exist on, by, you know, a lot of comic book stores. Um, maybe they'll become more widespread. I just want to leave our listeners with some behind the scenes cartoonist kayfabe secrets. What have you learned from this process? And is there any anecdotes that you can share? Man, I feel like I should have a million of these. And quite honestly, Aaron, I don't. <laughs> We've gotten along, you know, really well. We've known each other for 20 years. So I think we knew what to expect coming in. And it's a partnership. You know, if there's something that Ed really wants to talk about on the channel, well, sure, I'm game for that and vice versa. Um, you know, and as a result, I think those make some of the best episodes where one of us pulls out a book that the other one doesn't know. And in a way, that person gets to, you know, be kind of a, a stand-in for the audience at home is, is, you know, the person that knows the book gets to show it off a little bit and talk about why they love it and why it excites them. Um, we haven't had anything bad really happen. I used to do a podcast called Tell Me Something I Don't Know, where one of my best interviews, um, we were 20 minutes into it and realized we weren't recording it. <laughs> but we haven't had that experience with, uh, with cartoonist kayfabe yet. I feel like it's inevitable that things like that happen, that you lose, you know, a video or an interview. Um, but knock on wood, that hasn't been the case. Um, you know, most of the stories that I would tell you are just really happy anecdotes. Like um, one of the first cartoonist kayfabe shoot interviews we did is with Tim Vigil, the artist behind Faust. And I have, you know, I've admired his art for decades. And I've met him a little bit at shows and it's been very he's been very quiet when i've met him and so we lined up an interview with him at heroes con last year i think it was last year and i was so excited at the prospect of talking to him because i like his art and i don't know of a lot of interviews with him so i thought this would be great but i wasn't sure what to expect you know because he's always been pretty quiet when i talked to him at his table and that interview he just opened up you know it it, it was one of the most exciting things that i've done in comics um, you know, and, and so that all came about because of cartoon, cartoonist kayfabe. And I couldn't have been more excited to get that on video and then to be able to share that with, uh, with, with the kayfabe community. Um, I'm probably overlooking some fun anecdote, but we basically record, you know, one day a week and we record several shows on that day and then spend the week prepping those shows, editing them, and also prepping for the following week. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. You know, it's been, it's been pretty smooth. How labor intensive is it? It seems like you put so much content on the channel. Um, I, you know, I can barely keep up. Every time I don't watch a, a video on Cartoonist Kayfabe, you know, five more pop up. So is it as intense as it looks? Or, or do you guys make it, uh, is it easier for you than, than we initially think? Um, it's, it's not easy. <laughs> um, you know, we're trying to do it. We, we try to manage the time involved because we want to spend our time, the majority of our time making comics. And so, like I said, we record one day a week and then 
um, you know, you, you spend the, the rest of the week making your comics and then just prepping uh, for the shows and, and posting the shows. Um, the end of the record day, I usually come home and I'm spent, you know, I'm, I'm <laughs> exhausted because it, it is, you know, you might record five or six hours that day across several episodes uh, and, and, you know, including maybe talking to somebody. So it is draining, you know, especially on that day. And then the rest of the week, you know, you, you kind of just take note of what is drawing your attention as potential for the next week. You know, like, hey, I've been, you know, what, what have you been reading this week? Because you continue to be, you know, normally engaged with comics, read comics. You know, I read comics before I go to bed at night and stuff like that. And so, you know, if I come across something that really speaks to me that week, it's like, well, throw that into the box as like something we'll talk about. Um, you know, so it's, it's pretty natural for the most part. But that full day of record is, you know, it's, it's work. It's, you're definitely, uh, I, I go with a bunch of notes and uh, we record as much as we can and you go home and see what you have. Do you prioritize certain things that you want to talk about on the channel or do you record things as they come to you or just as they strike you? We do both. Uh, we usually plan on a couple of things that we're both going to look at and prepare for. Uh, it could be a comic that we're reading. It could be an issue of Wizard that we're reading or an interview from Comics Journal. You know, so there's usually something that we're both going to prepare for and then we can have a conversation about. And then usually we'll bring, you know, show and tells, something that, that we're interested to show off and to talk about and to share. And sometimes we both know it very well. Uh, you know, we'll give each other a heads up like, hey, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to bring Al Columbia this week. So if you're into Al Columbia or you want to brush up on it, you've been warned. Um, you know, so it's both, you know, we email throughout the week about stuff that is coming up or if we have an interview, if we know like we're going to interview Chris Claremont, maybe we'll review X-Men number one, uh, you know, and, and we'll plan that a little bit ahead of time so that we have some stuff that makes sense and that fits together. Why do you think people that don't normally do interviews, like really heavy hitters in this industry, are so interested in talking to you guys on Cartoonist Kayfabe? Um, there's a real common language, I think, with comics and especially with like creators. And one of the things that we've been doing in our, in our interviews, it, it's definitely a behind the scenes kind of talk. Like we, we interviewed Mark Miller and, you know, everybody knows Mark Miller's work because geez, man, like half of his comics, there's probably half a dozen or more of his comics that have been adapted into blockbuster movies. And so he's this very well-known writer uh, in and out of comics. And he said, whenever we were talking to him, um, you know, he had mentioned Dick Giordano. And then he said, it's so nice not to have to explain to you who that is, you know, because Ed and I know Dick Giordano. And his, his example is when he's talking to people in, say, the film industry, he would have to explain all of this stuff or he would have to kind of, you know, not go into certain details because they just don't, you know, they don't know the comics industry or comics history. And most people that make comics, they're comic lovers. You know, it's nice to have, to be able to have these conversations. Uh, you don't always get to do that. You know, you sit in a room by yourself most of the time working on this stuff and then you go out and conduct business and, you know, you may focus on other subjects. So, if you want to come and talk comics, we're a place that you can do that. And I think a lot of these cartoonists and makers, they love it. You know, I mean, they work very hard to refine their craft. Come on our show and tell us about it, you know. And I love hearing it because I'm constantly trying to get better. So if Mark Miller wants to come on and talk about how he structures a story, 
I can use that. You know, I'm, I'm genuinely interested to hear these things. Yeah, so can other artists that are watching. I'm excited to see what you come out with next. Maybe the next comic you, you bind, you know, that would be a great video. I always like seeing comics that don't have a graphic novel and how you collect them and bind them into a book. Um, <laughs> but I just want to see, like, what is you know, the the next thing, I mean, I know you have Octobriana, so maybe I want to take it back there. Uh, obviously, people should contribute. I've backed the project. Uh, you're going to want to see this. It, it looks great. It looks fantastic. But Jim, do you have any other uh, thoughts on that? Yeah, I would encourage everybody. There's a level there for you if you are just mildly curious. Um, you know, I'm I'm putting everything I've got into this thing. So whether it is a digital copy that you're picking up, something I wasn't sure I was even able to do uh, a month ago, I now have three digital copies that that will be going to that level. So that's the very bottom level. And as you go up the rewards. You know, there are things like um, I talked about a screen print, a blacklight screen print is what started me on this journey. That is a screen print that sold out almost instantly at the time years ago. I'm reprinting those. So, you know, if you like blacklight art, there's a lot of stuff for you uh, in this Kickstarter. If you like comics that look like no other comic, this is the Kickstarter for you. Um, and I hope, you know, it will appeal to people that are relatively new to comics. If you show up for the blacklight art, or if you're looking for a unique gift for somebody that likes art and design, this is something to check out. Um, I pride myself on making reader-friendly comics, comics that will work for longtime comics fans, but also are readable for somebody that isn't very familiar with reading comics. Comics language can be a little bit strange for people that aren't used to comic books. And I try very hard to make comics that are readable for everybody. So if you're looking for that gift that for your friend who loves graphic design and illustration, but maybe isn't a big comics reader, this is one to give a shot. That's awesome, man. I mean, the irony of cartoonist kayfabe is, you know, kayfabe means, you know, keeping up the mystique of the wrestling industry. It's a wrestling industry term, you know, keeping up the, the ruse that, that it's real. But the irony is that you guys are you guys are breaking kayfabe. You're giving you know a behind the scenes look, and I think you did that here. So uh, I just want people to be able to uh, find you and follow your career after they hear this conversation. Uh, where can people find you on social media? Well, you can follow Cartoonist Kayfabe on YouTube. You can follow Jim Rug Art on Instagram and Twitter. Um, you can find a lot of my artwork at jimrug.com. All right. Thanks, Jim. It's been great. And uh, we'll see you next time on Speech Bubble. Thanks, Aaron. This has been Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one -on -one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. See you next time. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com.